So I wanted to thank Megan for speaking and doing an awesome job last week. Where's Megan? Is she around here somewhere? Give her a big clap. She did awesome last week. Really loved you guys hearing from our leaders as well. And so uh, we're doing that panel discussion on March 19th, which will comprise of about four or five of our leaders up here on the stage. And so we need your questions. So as you guys think of questions, whether it's during the sermon itself or even um, when you're home at, at late at night and you're just pondering deep thoughts, um, you can text message or email that. Uh, Nick, go to my next slide here. We'll show you what you can, what you can text message or email. It's TBC poll at gmail.com, and you can text that or email it. Any questions you guys may be having as we go through the series, maybe personal questions or big picture, generic, abstract questions in relation to sexuality, relationships, really that runs the gamut. Um, so please get those to us, and we'll get those ready for our, our Q&A panel discussion on March 19th. So I'm going to give you an overview of the next three weeks. Uh, today we're going to talk about, this is part one of sexuality in this series, and then we're going to do dating towards marriage next week. So next week will be like our big dating talk. Like how do you take all this we talked about and apply it to a dating situation like in the here and now? That'll be next week. And then the week after that, Mrs. Ron Slavin will do like part two on sexuality. So it's a little bit disjointed, I know, but we're going to do like part one today and then dating and then sexuality again. Um, in a couple of weeks. And today we're going to answer three big questions. Here's our questions we're wrestling with today. Here's our big questions today. First of all, why did God design us as sexual beings? What is his vision for sexuality and marriage? And why does God confine sex exclusively for married couples? So three big questions we're going to try to wrestle with today. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you will know that we are not afraid to talk about this topic. I hope you know that by now, especially if you've been coming on Wednesday night the last two months. We are not afraid to talk about this topic. Um, but that's not always been true for the church, has it? In fact, if I were to summarize any message I heard growing up in a Christian school or even in a church setting, um, I would summarize the talks I heard on sexuality this way. Just don't, Right? Just don't. That's what, how I'd summarize any talk I heard on sexuality. It was just don't do it. Don't think about it. Um, don't even, don't talk about it. And this is how I'd summarize most of the ones that I heard when I was around your age. And so they mo- most of them had like a real negative context, right? And, and that's how I would describe uh, hearing these kinds of talks in high school. Now, when I was in seventh grade, I think it was seventh grade, uh, do you guys know who Magic Johnson is? Do you guys know Magic Johnson? Oh, okay. You're not as dumb as I thought you were. Okay. I don't mean that, by the way. Um, but Magic Johnson, so in the early 90s, he was the first famous person to come out with and actually publicly um, admit that he was HIV positive. And that was, big, that was huge news in our world back then. Because at that point, we knew what AIDS was. But we didn't know anyone or hear of anyone like famous who had, who was HIV positive. And so when he contracted HIV, um, it, it felt like, it really felt like, well, if Magic Johnson can get it, like anybody can get it. Now, never mind he slept with like a thousand women, okay? That was another part of the story. But 
we, everyone thought, okay, well, if he can get it, like, everyone's vulnerable. And we weren't sure back then, like, if someone sneezed, could you get AIDS? This is how people thought. And we weren't sure about that. So in seventh grade, they brought in this, um, this, this nurse. She was a mom of one of our students in our school. And she came in to give us this talk about um, sexuality and basically the AIDS talk, right? The one that's supposed to scare you to death, right, and keep you from getting involved sexually with someone before you get married. And I remember, um, and she was very personable, very engaging in how she presented everything, but then I remember thinking to myself, like, dude, I, I am so terrified. I am so terrified. There's no way I'm going down that road before marriage because I'm just afraid I'm going to get some disease, get someone pregnant. That, this is how we thought, all right, in the school I was, I was brought up in. Now, eighth grade. We had, um, I think, is it eighth grade when we have, I forget these years, but I think we had biology or life science or something where they talk about sex in science class, okay? And our, our, our teacher, who was one of the most prudish people around, you could just tell he's the kind of guy that would not want to talk about this in front of a bunch of teenagers, and he, he was so embarrassed to discuss this in class that he went and got this other person to come in and do the talk, in the class. And he sat in the back with his arms crossed like this and just turned red the entire time. And this was a school I went to. And this was the the environment I was brought up in. Now, it's not that, um, on the one hand, I think we we should, you should be terrified, because this is a, 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 a very amazing thing God's given us. There should be a, a, a fearful nature to this. But it was rare, or I, I don't think I ever heard a positive message about sexuality in the church. And so this will be my attempt today. My attempt today will be to paint a picture for you, on some level, a positive message of what is God's intent for this in the context that he's created it for. And if you remember... Our theme for the series is vision for the future. So I'm trying to paint a picture for you of this is God's intent and design for marriage, the positive message on sexuality, and then I'm going to leave the dirty work to Kim Ronslaven, all right? She's going to give you more of the message about, now this is the warning, because what comes with the good news is also the warning. And so we're still going to discuss that stuff, but... um, I'm going to let Kim take care of that when she gets to speak up here in a couple of weeks. So I'm not sure if she knows that, but she is going to do that. Um, so I want to give you a, a positive image of what God intends here in the context of marriage. Listen, instead of just scaring you into abstinence, I want to inspire you to wait. This is my goal today. Instead of just trying to frighten you and just bringing all this fear and those scare tactics like were done to me when I was a teenager. I want to inspire you with today's message to actually to want to wait, to desire that for yourself as you walk through the next few years of your life. But first I want to show you, I want to show you how the church has viewed sexuality throughout history. This will be, I think, a little bit interesting, a little bit um, fun, maybe a little awkward, but that's okay. Um, but so this first guy, throughout history, the church has had some odd views on sexuality. And this first guy, his name is Clement of Alexandria. This guy, you know him? 
You know, like personally? Wow, that's amazing. Um, this guy said that there's no way sex could be for pleasure. It's only for reproduction. This was his view. And doesn't he look like someone who would think that? I think he does. He does look like someone who would think that, I think. Um, I don't think he likes to smile too much. He didn't smile for the camera in this picture anyway. Uh, the next guy, a couple of guys, is Tertullian and Ambrose. These are church fathers. These are leaders of the church in that day. These men both preferred, yes, they all look very lively bunch. Both, they both preferred the extinction of the human race rather than for people to engage in sex. True story. The next guy is a guy named Origen, also a church father. And <laughs> wait a second. Well, one says, or, okay, Google tricked me. Google tricked me. That's really observant. I have like four slides with that same format. I hope it's not the same guy. But the name was correct. See, there's, there's a different guy, a different guy there. So go back to Origen. Actually, you know what? True story. Origen and Clement were twins. True story. Yes, they were. Lived at different times, but they were still twins. Um, so fake news, fake news, coming at you live, all right? Uh, so Origen, he thought sex was so evil that he taught that the Song of Solomon wasn't really about a husband and wife, but he taught it was an allegory of God and Israel, which if you've have you read Song of Solomon... That's just awkward to think that's about God and Israel. It's not about God and Israel. And in fact, he went so far, I won't give you details, but he went so far as to take a knife and perform surgery on himself. I won't give you details. But this was Origen, all right? This is Origen. The next guy is Gregory of Nyssa. And he taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire. And if the fall had not occurred the human race would have reproduced in some other way. This is what he believed, all right? Next we have John Chrysostom. This is interesting. John Chrysostom. He taught that Adam and Eve could not have had sex before the fall, all right? Which makes no sense whatsoever because think about this. Just imagine this. So Adam and Eve, they sin, and then God says, okay, for your punishment, we are casting you out of the garden, and now I sentence you to a lifetime of doing this. All right? That doesn't make a lot of sense, right, that God would do that. So John Chris has some really messed up views about sexuality. Next person, this is Jerome. No last name, just Jerome. Is it also the same guy? Different guy. He looks really unhappy. He, if he, if he began to experience, like, sexual desire, here's what he would do. He would throw himself into briar bushes, okay? He would throw himself into briar bushes, uh, creating pain to distract himself from sexual desire. He would also take a rock and beat himself in the chest with it if he experienced this kind of desire. Next, we have Augustine. Now, Augustine is someone who was not a Christian early in life, and he's someone who um, had sex before he became a Christian. And so because of his sinful past, once he actually got married and then he became someone who was a believer, 
um, he still taught married couples that they should abstain from sex even in, in marriage at different times. So he had some really weird takes on even married couples not going down that road. Now next we have a very interesting individual. This guy's name is St. Francis. Now St. Francis did something very strange. He would make women out of snow, all right? And then he would cuddle with them, okay? True story. Very awkward, I know, yes. And this was his way of trying to quiet his desire sexually. Very strange, very strange. And you might say this is what inspired this song, I believe. Maybe. I don't know. But I'm just guessing. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. All right, so you get the idea. It may have inspired that song. I'm not sure about that, but it may have. Now, now let's think about St. Francis for a minute. Listen, listen. St. Francis, like, my, my next question is, how did this become public knowledge? Because either he told someone, either he told someone or someone saw him doing this, right? Either situation would be very awkward, I think, for St. Francis. So, um, so we'll move on from St. Francis. And I'm like, and this guy somehow became a saint? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> Catholic rules, throw him out the window. All right. So um, next guy is Pope Gregory the Great. Pope Gregory. In early 6th century, because of his views on sexuality, listen, the church began limiting days when sex was allowed and not allowed for married couples. And eventually, it was not allowed for more than half the calendar year. All right? So if you're single back then, you're walking the streets and wonder why everyone's inside on certain days, right? Like you just have no idea what's going on. And so this is Pope Gregory for you. Now listen, here's why I tell you uh, all these weirdos, these guys, that these are like the leaders of the church throughout the centuries, believe it or not. So throughout history, the church has viewed sexuality negatively. So the church, we we have to reclaim a proper view of sexuality. And we're going to start by doing that, by going to Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. Just one verse, verse 20. Romans 1, 20. And I love starting with this verse because I think it lays a groundwork, a foundation for us this morning of what we're going to talk about. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, this verse is normally used to talk about uh, people that are atheists or those that may not believe how you and I might believe, and, and showing how creation points to a God, and that's, that's true, but I want you to see how this, this is not about sexuality um, explicitly, but I want you to see the bigger point in Romans one twenty, because look at what he says. Paul says, God's eternal power and his divine nature are seen in what God has made. That means all of creation, 
all of what you and I see and experience in the world reveals something about God's nature. Art reveals something about the artist. In the same way, creation reveals something about the creator. You might say it like this. Everything created tells us something about the creator. And yes, this is true even of sexuality. And I think as you hear that, you, I'm sure inside your, 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 your mind you have this like reaction of like, wait, what? What does sexuality have to do with God and how does it How does that relate? Because we don't think of God as we call God Father. We don't think of God as having biological sexuality, do we? I'm not saying that this morning. But if everything that's created says something about God, then that has to be true as well about sex and sexuality. And so what does sex, I want to get back to our earlier question, why did God design us as sexual beings? What does sex tell us about God? It tells us this, very simply about God. It tells us that God is good and that God gives us good gifts. That's the first thing it tells us about God and his character. Because you see, the old way in which the church viewed sexuality, they, their belief wouldn't allow you to believe that. Their belief would not allow you to, to believe that sexuality said something good about God and his character, that God gives good gifts. They saw it as not a good gift. They saw it as a curse, like this is a curse, this is a burden. And we'll talk more about this as we go, but this was their viewpoint of sexuality. This also tells us that in marriage, two become one, and that's true in every aspect of life. And so when, when two people get married, the Bible says they're no longer two, they're now one. It says one flesh. That's not referring just to sexuality, but also they're, they're one in every aspect of their life. They're unified as one. And this oneness in marriage reflects the oneness of God. And so as the husband and wife become one, so Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all one. So the point I'm trying to make is that marriage is a picture of the divine trinity itself. There are many, but there are one. There are two, but there are one. And so there is an image that's being reflected in the marriage relationship that, that depicts who God is. And marriage doesn't just show us a picture of Christ in the church, but also this picture of, of oneness. So another question we raised earlier today was, what is God's vision for sexuality in marriage? In other words, what function or purpose does it serve? So I'm going to skip over the one where we say um, it's for making babies. I think you know that by now, right? If you don't, then I don't know. This is the wrong class for that, I guess. But um, we're, gonna, we're not going to be real obvious, but I want to give you some bigger implications of sexuality in the context of marriage. Here's God's vision for sexuality in marriage. The first, and I hope obvious, is that God designed sex for pleasure. Very basic. And here's what I would ask you. If I, I, would, if I had those guys on the stage here in all of their old glory, those old men on the stage, I would say, well, if God didn't design it partly for this, then why would, he make it, why would he make it pleasurable? Why would he make that something that we're driven towards if that wasn't God's intent? Because for so long, Christians have not been allowed to view sexuality in this way. But when you look at the Bible, I mean, Song of Solomon is pretty clear. 
You know, Song of Solomon is that one book. Um, when I was an intern at a, at a church many years ago, whenever you're an intern, you do stupid things. I still do stupid things, but not as stupid as back then. And I was doing a talk. I was asked to do a talk in front of the students about um, sexuality. And so as an intern, I thought, dude, I'm going to totally, like, blow them out of the water with this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the most explicit part of Song of Solomon, and I'm just going to read it, and it's going to be awkward, and it's going to be so great. And as I was holding the Bible on the stage and I'm reading this passage, I literally started to sweat. Okay, I was like, this is so weird and awkward. And you could tell the kids were like, really, you're going to read that to us from the stage? And, but here's the deal, though. If, if you look at, if I'm in front of a bunch of married people, no problem. Like right now, it might make things a little awkward in this room if I read it to you just straight up. But listen, I don't want that to send a message to you, though, that those guys in church history were right to view sex negatively. That's not biblical. If you read Song of Solomon, you see a very clear picture of a husband and wife with sexual desire for one another, and it's good and it's godly. You see it in that book. And I think in our culture, we have stereotyped men as being the ones who desire that, and women is just kind of like, oh, okay, not so much. But if you read Song of Solomon, it's pretty amazing. Like, she's, the wife is the one who's initiating some of these things in the book of Song of Solomon. It's really kind of crazy, you know, that um, this is in the Bible. And so the Bible um, does not condemn sexual desire. It actually commands sex for the married. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. Paul writes these words. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this verse does not mean that abuse is okay. This does not mean you recognize what is said. It doesn't say this was a culture in time when men were thought to own women. So what Paul is saying here is revolutionary because Paul is saying, no, as a woman, you don't own yourself and he doesn't own himself. You belong to each other. So you see what Paul is saying here in that culture would have been revolutionary. Because in that culture, it was patriarchal. It was men thought they should have all the power and they would abuse women, much like today. But in a good, godly, loving relationship, Paul is saying, no, you don't, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to your spouse. And that carries with it many implications. So abuse is not what's being talked about here, but it's saying you belong to each other. This is God's design for what a marriage is supposed to be. And anything other than that is a distortion of God's intent. In fact, I think because the church has been so silent on this issue. This is why even some Christians will go see things like Fifty Shades. 
because they think that, you know, I mean, they can't really talk about these things in the church. It's off limits. So it sort of pushes them in these twisted and distorted directions with their sexuality. And so I think the church has to be a place where we can talk openly about these kind in, in the proper context, of course, in appropriate ways. But the church has to be a place of honesty and not a place where God's design is being twisted and distorted. So I think this is how Satan works because people sense in themselves real God-given sexual desire, but the church has told them throughout history, bad, this is evil, don't even think about it, don't talk about it, don't even, um, don't even go there. And so what happens is sexuality gets distorted, and they start to see sexuality and sex as the forbidden fruit, and this is just how Satan works. Because you think, just like Eve did, that God is holding out on you, he's keeping good things from you, and this, this lie, the same lie that Adam and Eve believed, is the same lie that will get you off track sexually. When you think God is not good, you think he doesn't have your best interests in mind, you think that he's holding out on you in the same way that Eve thought and Adam thought he was holding out on them, and it's a lie. And this is how Satan works, and it's how he, it's how he gets you to take something good that God designed and it gets you to buy a twisted and distorted version of what God intended for good. And so, of course, God designed sex for pleasure in the marriage relationship. The second thing is God designed sex to reinforce the marriage covenant. All through the Old Testament, we see God commanding the Israelites to perform what are called covenant renewal ceremonies. You'll see it throughout the Old Testament where God commands the leaders of Israel, he says, you know, stop here and I want you to worship and build an altar and think and pray and worship and remember who your God is. He's constantly asking his people to have covenant renewal ceremonies. And the point of this was to rekindle their heart towards God. The point of this was to remind them that God loves them and how they should love him. Now, this might sound crazy to you, but follow me on this. The Bible calls your spouse a covenant partner. It's a relationship based on a promise. But over time, as you might imagine, in the marriage relationship, you begin to forget who this person is and who you are as a husband or a wife. You begin to take them for granted. You begin to expect things. You begin to, you know, not really feel like you love them like you maybe once did. And so what God has designed, I think, and it's profound, is that sex is God's way of reinforcing the marriage covenant over and over and over again. And so it acts as a covenant renewal ceremony, so to speak, in the context of marriage. And so God designed sex to remind you of the covenant, that you're one with this person. It's a reminder that, you're, that, that your entire life, you're no longer two, but you are one 
in every aspect of life. You are united. You are bonded. You are one emotionally, physically, spiritually, and even legally through the covenant of marriage. And so it's God's way of introducing a covenant renewal aspect to the marriage relationship. It's God's way for two people to say, I belong completely to you. There is you and there is no other. In the same way, God wanted the Israelites to see him as their God and to see other idols as just that, idols, and not to be worshipped, but to be cast aside. Because they only had a heart for one God, and it was the true God, Yahweh. In the same way, God wants you to have one heart for your husband or for your wife. And so this act depicts that covenant the way that God wants you to see that covenant. And so sex creates oneness. Even when it's done sinfully, it creates oneness. It creates a situation where you feel this, this bond with this person because of what you've experienced with them. And this is why we say um, sex outside of marriage is wrong because, listen, here's why it's confined to married couples Because sex can't reinforce the covenant if there is no covenant. Sex can't have this purpose if there's no promise and no covenant and no legally binding commitment to this person. And so I want you to watch this because as we look around our culture, it might appear that all these people having sex outside marriage, it might appear like they're the ones having all the fun, like they're the ones that have it so good in our world today. And all these you know, poor, oppressed Christians that are living in these confined rules and regulations, the ones that are saving sex for marriage, that, that we're the ones that are missing out. And I want to show you this morning how the opposite is true. Because in fact, the ones who have separated sex from relationship, sex from covenant, sex from the promise of marriage, they're the ones missing out. You've got to get it out of your minds and hearts that God is holding out on you. The ones who are missing out are the ones who have separated it from the context in which God designed for it to take place. Writer Tim Keller, he says it this way. He says, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. So when you and I do anything sexual outside of marriage, it's like we're saying, I don't want all of you. I just want part of you. I just want you physically. I don't want you... Um, I don't want you sanctifying me. I don't want to be one with you in any other aspect of life except just physical. And this is, you're, you're selling yourself short. If that's your approach, you're the one missing out. You're the one missing out on what God truly has for you. And so the Bible is saying, Don't become one with someone physically unless you're willing to become 
one with them in every way, emotionally, spiritually, legally, in all the ways that you become one. You don't separate physical out. That is taking. That is consumer relationship. And it falls much short of what God intends. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said, he says, sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing and digesting. Some of you guys today at lunch, you'll go to lunch and you'll eat a sandwich and you'll be like, this tastes really good. And you, you, you chew it and then you spit it into a bowl. That's not how we eat, right? To, to get the full experience of eating means that you, 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 you chew the food, you take it in, you digest it. This is the, f- the full intent of what food is supposed to be. And in the same way in marriage, God's full intent of what sex is supposed to be is in the context of marriage. And anything apart from that, you're the one missing out. You're the one selling yourself short. You're the one selling sexuality short if you separate it from the other ways of being one with someone. The third way in which God's intent, God designed sex to help sanctify us. Now, at first, you might hear that and go, wait, 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 what? That doesn't make any sense. Because if I checked last, every accountability group I've been a part of, we talk about sex in a negative way, lust in a negative way. How in the world did God design sex to help sanctify us and grow us? That makes no sense. Because we generally see sex as keeping us from growth. Here's how. In the context of marriage... Sex is given to the man and the woman to sanctify their relationship. Because think about it. If there is anger, if there is bitterness, if there is resentment in the marriage relationship, it will affect their sex life. Do you understand? Sex reveals problems and issues in the marriage that would never be dealt with if sex didn't exist. Again, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the Bible gives us a high view of sex. It is a sign and seal of our oneness with each other and with God. We should not then be surprised to discover that you may find problems showing up in bed, which if it wasn't for sex, you might never have seen. Because God has given the man and woman sex, you can't just sweep these problems under the rug in a relationship. You can't do it. It's like a barometer that that gauges the health of the relationship. And listen, if the relationship, when you're married to someone one day, if the relationship lacks an environment of love and communication and emotion and feeling and all those positive things, that's going to affect you sexually in your sex life. It's going to affect you. And so this is God's way of reminding the couple that, no, you're to be one in every aspect of your life. And if someone's relationship isn't healthy, emotionally, that's going to affect them sexually. And so in this way, God uses this aspect of the marriage to sanctify and grow and make both people more and more Christ-like. So I want to come back to the initial topic we talked about. We talked about all the different ways in which the church has messed up our view of sexuality. And 
And I want to end with a couple of quotes by the founder of Playboy, Hugh Hefner. And here's what Hugh Hefner said. You may not know how he grew up, but here's what he said. He says, I was raised in a setting in which sex was for procreation only and the rest was sin. So Hugh Hefner was raised with the mindset that we, we saw all throughout church history, that, that sex is sort of taboo. You don't talk about it. You don't think about it. A very religious home. He says, our family was prohibitionist, Puritan in a very real sense, never hugged. Oh, no, there was no hugging or kissing in my family. There was a point in time when my mother later in life apologized to me for not being able to show affection. That was, of course, the way I'd been raised. And I said to her, Mom, you couldn't have done it any better. And because of the things you weren't able to do, it set me on a course that changed my life and the world. But you see, the home he grew up in taught sex is gross, sex is taboo. We don't even, we don't even have affection in our we don't, even, we don't kiss, we don't hug, we don't do anything. It's just off limits. That's just, you know, for someone else. And so any physical affection was frowned upon in his family. So you see what happened to Hugh Hefner. He was raised to believe sex is gross. And so what he did, he went in the direction of sex is God. And this is how the pendulum swings in our culture. When people are raised in a, in a home or in a church where it's off limits, it's taboo, we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, then they might go the other extreme. They might become someone who, who sees sex as God. And they go in the direction that Hugh Hefner went in, which is another mistake and a dangerous one. If someone is raised in a place where there's a lot of abuse or a lot of promiscuity in the home, then maybe they adopt the view that sex is gross. We don't, we don't address it. We don't talk about it. But you see how the pendulum can swing back and forth. You can react, overreact, based on how you're raised. And so when I look, when I think about that dynamic, I want you to see sex as a gift from God. It's not God. It's not meant to be God. It's not meant to be gross. It is meant to be a gift that God gives to a husband and a wife. And listen, as I think about our own church context, I get so grieved by what I see. When someone says to me, did you know that so-and-so, they're getting divorced? And almost always, it's because someone in the marriage saw sex as God. I get grieved. As a pastor on staff at this church, I I literally, when I hear that news, that so-and-so is getting divorced, I, I literally feel just ill for about a week, just Grieving for the husband, grieving for the wife, grieving for those kids, grieving because this is not God's intent. God's intent was not for us to see sex as God. It's meant to be seen as sex as a gift. And so when someone sees sex as God, there's just so much damage, so much destruction, and I'm grieved by it. God is grieved by it. And this is why I want you to see sex as God's gift 
in a marriage relationship. And so, of course, I, I want today to be this positive view, this positive image of what it's meant to be in the context of marriage. But there's another side to that, because when you don't see it as that, and you see it as something else, it, it does lead to destruction. It does lead to grief. It does lead to divorce. It leads to broken families. I'm just so, I'm so tired. I'm so, I'm so grieved by so many of the kids that I see in this church, in our city, that don't even know their mom or, mom or dad. They don't even know what happened. They just know mom and dad are separated or they're divorced or whatever. And so this topic of sexuality can be something that is so amazing and good that God gives as a gift to a married couple. But when it's, when it's not done the right way, it leads to ultimate destruction. And so we'll, we'll talk more about this in two weeks. But I want this one just to kind of sit and, and for you to just know that this is God's gift. This is God's gift to humanity. But if you abuse the gift, it leads to great destruction. It does. And we'll address more of those warnings in a couple of weeks. But I want you to see God is good because, again, I don't want to scare you. I don't want to just scare you into abstinence. I want to inspire you to wait. I want to inspire you to wait and see our God as a good God, the God that he truly is. So I want you to discuss your, your questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss for the next few minutes.